But the daughter telling the story said, you know, that's politics. My mum being able to access the care she needed in a timely manner, um, you know, in a hospital that had lights and electricians that had been trained to turn the lights on and the doctors and a medical system that we could access, that's politics, you know. Care is political, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's, it's essential politics. is the best version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everyone, today we have back on the show the one, the only, Dr. Millie Rooney. She is my colleague. If we worked in the same office, she would definitely be my work wife, said with utmost love and respect. Um, And she was the guest on our very first launch episode of The Remakers, which remains one of our most popular and downloaded shows. So we've been wanting to get her back on. And today's topic, you're going to hear kind of how it came up. But um, basically, Millie is a rest boss. You do not argue about rest or the need for it with Millie Rooney. And that's what today's show is kind of about. It is about the need for rest and care and play and humanity that is in all of our lives. Um, when we talked about our vision for you know, the Australia of our dreams, um, one of the things that we heard from people again and again was, I have time to rest. Like we ended up writing a sentence about the the shade is plentiful you know we have time to care time to rest time to play and so that's what we're talking about today we're talking about kind of what are the things that how do we treat this topic do we take it seriously do we feel like it's a little bit snowflakey and soft and um, what are some of the preconditions to creating this world that we want um, Millie, if you don't know her, is the national coordinator for Australia Remade. She has a PhD in kind of joy and community in interdependence and delight. And she has a lot of lived experience with this topic, which she brings to our discussion today. Um, she puts me in my place. It's excellent. She's very disarming and lovely. And without further ado, here's Millie. everybody. Welcome to The Remakers. And I am so delighted to have back with us Millie Rooney, my beautiful colleague who joined us for the very first episode. And Millie, thank you for being here. It's just delightful to have another Millie Lily show. It's been too long. Yeah, it's very nice to be back. Um, Now, we wanted to start doing these kind of you and me chats a bit more regularly. And we were thinking about... um, potential, you know, topics and, and ways of structuring it and all the rest of it. But I think um, I think we need to be honest with our audience about how today's particular <laughs> episode topic came to be, which was basically I was feeling bad. I was feeling bad about or embarrassed or sheepish about the idea that um, I really wanted to have on a, a few guests as we move into the end of the year and the lovely kind of summer period. I wanted to have on some guests that focus on things like well-being and mental health and families. And I'm saying to Millie, oh, but like, is it political enough? Is it Australia remade enough? Like, it's not about democracy or climate change. And you just can't feel bad about caring about well-being in front of Millie Rooney. Like, she will not have it. She will not, she will not accept this. Um, so you told me off quite rightly. Do you want to? Yeah. Why did you do that? Well, I mean, this is this is why we do what we do, right? Like we can't separate out politics and democracy from caring and and well-being. Caring and well-being is political. Our democracy is set up to care for us. Um, you know, I think it, it's it's we do ourselves a disservice when we sideline it off as the nice, soft, easy stuff. Like actually, caring and well-being is the hard work because it flies in the face of of what we're told is okay, you know, work, be productive. Uh, oh, you want a sick day? Oh, are you even a valuable human? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it takes courage. It's, 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 it's a form of activism to put that stuff first. And look, in the couple of years we've been working together, I've come to think of you as like the rest boss because 
if I dare to come to work and I mean we both work from home but like if I dare to to turn up on a day when um I'm not feeling well you're like what are you doing go back to bed and yeah I had to laugh because like of course at the start of this week I had a cold and then um my daughter got the cold and so she had to stay home yesterday and my husband took a day of carers leave and like we made sure it's not COVID and gotten a test just to be sure but it's like you know it I I really have come to respect. I've never had another workplace or another colleague where it's like the opposite of the pressure that at least pre-COVID existed in most workplaces where it's like, oh, you're, you're feeling a bit under the weather, suck it up and just get on with it. You're all, you know, in Australia, we made, um, thanks to kind of your leadership and the culture that you set, it's quite the opposite. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think also we're really lucky, right? Because we have sick leave, <laughs> you know, we have each other and other colleagues who are supportive of that. So we're allowed to push back against that that norm because we're safe to do so. So we have this beautiful opportunity to show that leadership to each other, which is hard enough, but, you know, by talking about it on this podcast to everybody else. So let's, let's back it up a little bit for people here and maybe introduce ourselves a little bit more to anyone who doesn't kind of know us or um, maybe know why this is a topic that um, we're both actually pretty passionate about. You've had some pretty like full-on experiences with rest being a really important theme and well-being being a really important theme in your own life. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, when I was 22, I met the love of my life and he could, you know, he'd leap to touch ceilings. We'd go bushwalking every weekend. We'd ride like, you know, we were young and, you know, out in the world physically. Um, And then when I was 24, he came down with something called chronic fatigue syndrome, which um, basically can leave people bedridden, um, stuck in a dark room. You know, there's varying degrees of how it disables you. Um, But for him and for me, so for the last 15, 13 years, uh, I've shared my life with someone who rest is an essential part of him being able to function in the world. So we've We've had this really lived experience of what happens when you don't rest. There's a very direct impact um, on his health and then indirectly on mine. And so, you know, it's that thing where something in your life happens that's different to a lot of your peers and you suddenly reevaluate everything, you know, like I don't want a single other person to go through what we've gone through with that health. And so I am very ferocious about, you know, like go and rest. Your, your, your health is precious and you resting normalizes us resting and you not turning up to work sick protects, I mean, we work virtually now, but, you know, in a physical workplace, you know, you not turning up sick protects me from not bringing sickness home. And so um, we have had to actively, to keep ourselves sane, cheer resting and and cheer stopping um or else we would have we would have lost it long ago I think yeah and and watching that play out in my community in other forms of other people with really serious life challenges who also need to be loudly cheered to take time out you know we have a community now where we actively someone will text me oh I'm going to take the day off work I'm not that well and they'll they'll say can you cheer me for that because it's hard yeah and yeah, you, I mean, when, when I first met you, I remember um, looking at your bio online and it said something like Millie is also a passionate care for her community and passionate about this being a visible and valuable use of her time. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a fascinating thing to me and I'm not a parent. So it, it as a woman and a non-parent, that brings a different dynamic for me, right? Because I'm not saying I'm a carer for my children, which is also a radical act to state in that way, but people, one, assume my family is children, um, but two, it's it's I, I get the shakes every time I introduce myself like that. I'm really nervous about it. And partly I had this epiphany of like I'm spending so much of my week doing caring work, whether that's caring for my husband, whether that's supporting someone going in the community, going through a breakup, like I wasn't coping with my life because I hadn't factored in, oh, that's about a day a week if I add it up. And you can't pay me to do that work, but I can claim it as as time and space. And it's it's really fascinating what happens when you say that. Like I've I've had I've been at conferences where it's been read out, you know, Dr. Millie Rooney does all these things and they've left off that bit about caring. And I thought, isn't that interesting that you're not 
valuing that. So I always add it in. Um, but it also changes how other people are allowed to speak about themselves. And I, you know, you would have a different experience. Obviously you, you do have children and your, your engagement with this is both the same and different to me. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I'm still really curious about what it was like for 24 year old you to suddenly be living with the love of your life who has a chronic illness and is struggling to, to sort of function and the weight of that and the kind of invisibility of that weight, because yes, I have young children, but that's something you can talk about. That's something people understand. Um, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's a pretty, you know, quote unquote, normal or universal experience. And so we can all have a good laugh slash cry slash whatever we need to have about it that week. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's absolutely why I freelanced for years and was self-employed, you know, it was just because I, I couldn't, I didn't want to, um, sort of, I needed a way to work that would work for my family. And that was the best solution that, that I could come up with. But, um, I've at least been able to share that part of myself. I don't know if I'd be brave enough to lead with it in a super professional context. Like I still feel like there's this, you know, there's the you that you put forward on Facebook and the you that you put forward on LinkedIn. And I always notice if someone puts forward on LinkedIn mother, or, you know, as part of their kind of bio, it's like, oh, that's a really deliberate choice. And, and I don't want a conversation about well-being and care to be um, only looked at through a gendered lens, because, I, you know, as you've pointed out as well, like that happens all the time. And then the whole thing kind of just gets pigeonholed as like a women's issue when it's most certainly not. Um, but obviously for a man, we're so comfortable seeing men as providers that when a man is visibly a carer as well, we don't think, oh, that's going to undermine his ability to be a provider. You know, we don't think, oh, how, how on earth could he possibly look after the kids and go to work? Or how on earth could he possibly, like if he was looking after a sick partner, as, you know, that would be like, wow, what a great guy. Um, and I've noticed in COVID, like my, my husband has been probably more comfortable than I've been about having the kids interrupt him in work meetings or because to him, it's like his, his status as a professional has never been questioned. It's, it's of course, this is part of life, but how I'm curious about your previous workplace. Like, I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but, or in general, like, have you felt this weight and this invisibility of that weight that you had this kind of whole other side to your life that you didn't always feel supported around or was there support for you in the workplace? prior to this? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a few issues. One, the particular invisibility and history of this particular illness that my husband has, you know, is very invisible, but I think, you know, even that bit aside, like our workplaces are not set up to, um, to look at the, the kind of structural factors that lead to supporting wellbeing. And like culture is this incredible, driver of what we do and don't do and to stand up to on the one hand shifting culture is as simple as saying I'm not going to do this or I am going to do this but on the other hand it carries with it this real like you say burden of expectation and perception about who you are professionally and um you know I once I, I was loud in my workplace about you know hey you're sick what are you doing here you know like I can't take this illness home COVID is, has shifted this, but, you know, again, you do, there is this courage required, I think. And, you know, I, I had a very funny experience where I had someone more senior to me come into my workplace, very, very sick. And I texted my husband being like, I'm so angry with this person and accidentally sent it to this person. <laughs> and, you know, I went up to them and said, look, you know, I'm angry. I've just sent you a text saying I'm angry. Like you're really sick go home. And they, they went home, but it took me making a mistake <laughs> to have, I don't know if I would have had the courage to really boot them out the door. So I think, you know, and we've talked about it, you know, we have a very safe workplace for this type of thing and it's still hard. And it's still hard because you don't want to let the team down because you don't want to, especially, you know, if you work part-time, you feel like on the days that you do work, how dare you not be available that, you know, you're already somehow, and not that I feel this way in, in my present context, but there's that internal voice, you know, it's the, um, 
some people call it like the, the internal policeman where you feel like, but you know, are you doing enough? Have you proven yourself enough this week? And we just want to see ourselves as lifters, not leaners, you know, all that kind of thing. But I, I think there are other challenges with taking well-being kind of seriously as a topic. And I want to unpack that a little bit with you because what is it about this as a topic that makes us feel like it's not something for serious people or it's a bit cringy or um, not something that we discuss alongside the kind of big important challenges of the world? Um, and I, I think there's just some real obvious kind of things I want to just say off the bat. One is that the whole concept of well-being has really been very effectively um, taken by capitalism and turned into by this, by that. You know, well-being equals bath bombs and spa retreats rather than, you know, taking care of your taxes or having rest or having rights or engaging in revolution. You know, well-being is this individual thing you can purchase. Um, it's also just something that uh, in that same sort of um, way that it's been kind of framed as a women's issue. It's therefore kind of soft or snowflakey, or is it actually professional? Um, and I think, you know, in activism, as much as any other workplace culture, there is perhaps, you know, more lip service that was paid for ideas like rest, but a lot of people had a lived experience of um, performing productivity and being burnt out and being good martyrs for the cause. Because if you work for something you believe in, you know, all the more reason to kind of shove your own needs down because, oh my gosh, haven't you noticed there's important stuff to be done? Um, and I do think you're right. I do think COVID is changing this. I think it's one of the most positive things that's been accelerated out of COVID and that people are working for increasingly. Um, they're looking for work-life balance over just salary. The, the message coming from our workplaces and from our schools is now please stay home. If you are sick, please stay home. Um, but it's more than just being sick. It is it is the ability to have a life and to be a whole person and to be to have work be something that um, is part of who we are, but not all of who we are. And that's a good thing. You know, that's, that's okay. Um, but I think that we still have you know, we've grown up in a culture of what some people call, you know, internalized capitalism, which is basically, I'm productive, therefore, I'm worthy. And we want to project this image of being productive and, and having high standards for ourselves. And, you know, and, and so excellence has kind of been sort of come to equate being kind of always on, you know, and anything that approaches, quote, balance, kind of gets associated with a little bit of hmm, maybe mediocrity. I don't know. What do you reckon? Well, I mean, there's so much I want to say in response. Um, but I think, you know, there's a few things there around, you know, thinking about, well, what what are the structural barriers to us doing that self-care, which is actually community care? So, you know, you're saying with COVID we've started to, you know, um, know not going to work when we're sick like that's changing the culture but I'm thinking about people that I know who have uh, don't have sick leave and are taking massive hits when they've got a cold because they don't want to go and risk anyone else getting sick um, because even if they do just have a cold and not COVID they still don't want other people to then have to take time off their work so this act in that instance of kind of recognizing self-care is also being this act of solidarity for community care but at the same time this person these people that I know aren't being supported by our community to take that act of self and community care and that's where I think you know we've talked a bit before about ideas of universalism and you know what would it mean to have a structure in place that enabled us to care for ourselves as an act of solidarity and care for other people you know so when you say um, they're not being supported by their community to be able to take a day of sick leave is that just because they don't have paid sick leave yeah, through their work yeah they don't have paid sick leave they run a small business by themselves um and you know that would go for heaps of casual workers you know thousands of casual workers across the country where we are asking people to not only you know one it's weird because we're putting the burden of self-care you, know, you should stay home and rest when you're sick. That would be looking after yourself, which I 100% believe. And we're also saying, and stay home and look after yourself because that's an act of caring for the community. But by the way, as a community as a whole, 
we're not going to support you and you're going to take a financial hit and you then have to choose between being a terrible person individually, a terrible person for the community and paying the rent. Um, So I think there's some interesting stuff there, which is why this ties back into that idea of this is political, you know, this this is about economics. This is a very serious um, way of thinking about things. And I think it's also just, you know, worth pointing out that you mentioned about the idea of carers self-care having been really individualised and it's the bath bombs and the retreat and the glass of wine and, you know, whatever. And not that those any of those things are inherently bad, um, but also wanting to do that that tip of the hat to where to some of the kind of often black women who've talked about this before, um, you know, some of them being like Audrey Lord and Angela Davis and those ideas of, you know, caring, I think Audrey Lord said, caring for myself is an act of political warfare, you know, which is particularly important um, for, as, a, as a black woman, I think she was saying. Um, but just kind of interesting to think, you know, none of the ideas we're talking about are new. They come from this history of self-care as solidarity that's been kind of hijacked by that that wellness industry. Yeah. One of the things I was really disappointed about watching the um, kind of COVID culture wars from afar and in the US was I felt like progressives latched on to were people wearing masks and that just became the whole fight. How dare these horrible, inconsiderate people not wear masks? It's the least you can do, yada, yada, yada. And it's not that, you know, it's not that you shouldn't wear a mask or like, but I just, I kept thinking if people would turn one ounce of their attention that is going to this onto actually asking the question, do people have paid leave to be at home? Can people actually afford to stay home or do they have to go to work and expose other people and be out and about in the community? If we were fighting for the we instead of just for the the individual atomized behavior that we can see and condemn and decide whose side you're on, we would get so much further. And this notion that you can have a healthy me in the absence of a healthy we is just fundamentally flawed. I mean, if you could achieve or buy your way to well-being, America would be the happiest place on earth. We would have hacked it by now, you know, like, but it's not. I mean, every every research study that comes out shows us like really not at the top of the list. And it's the anxiety that comes from living in a place where you know that actually no one does have your back if, you know, and I'm, I'm not meaning to just be negative about the US in, in some kind of pile on way at all. But it's like, even right now in my own life, we're looking about, you know, been looking all around for about 12 months now, thinking about um, moving out of Sydney and where could we go and um, needing all kinds of things to be met. And yes, I would love to be able to, you know, buy a home. That's part of why we're struggling to stay in Sydney. But there's so much more beyond those 12 walls, the four walls, um, to being in a kind of healthy community, to having a happy life that I cannot provide for myself. I cannot provide a safe and welcoming community with nice parks, good amenities, good structures, good schools, good you know access to healthcare. I can't achieve that on my own. I can't achieve the peace of mind that... Um, people are going to be safe and looked after and that if we need help, someone will come to us or you know, any of the things that we all kind of basically want. It's all part of that sort of healthy we. And so I think it's really exciting to have conversations about what are the conditions that kind of promote and advance that and what are the things that undermine that. And again, what COVID showed us is just, you know, we're strong as the quote weakest link. Like we are only as strong as we are taking care of everybody. And the moment that we decide that some people are unimportant and disposable, um, then that's on us. Yeah. And I'm thinking about, um, my PhD research. One of the things that was really interesting in that was the idea of obligation and obligation to your neighbors and that, you know, people are unwilling to receive from their local communities because they don't want to be indebted. Um, you know, whether it's because they borrowed the ladder or babysat the kid or, you know, whatever. Um, but what was really clear out of that is that that sense of obligation to your neighbours. So somebody asking um, for something and you being indebted is what holds community together. And so, you know, the flip side is if you need help and you ask for it, that's a service to the community because that's the wave of community. Like there's really, I think there's there's things we we forget that we can play mind games with this stuff and flip it. And I think 
you know, that that's a bit radical in itself, you know. That's totally <laughs> radical. Imagine feeling like you were doing a service to community building by being in need of help. Like we are not, we don't think that way. And, you know, a real example that, uh, you know, you know, you and I have talked about is that you taking time off if your kids are sick or something and you just being like, sorry, I, I can't, the kids need me. So we drop some of our work is a service to me because it, it gives me permission to have space to deal with the things I need to in my life, you know, when illness flares up or whatever. And so I think it, you know, it comes back that circle about talking about care and self-care and the solidarity of that, like you taking that stance on your kid enables me to take a stance on an invisible illness in my life and still feel like an okay person. Like I need that on a poster or something (laughs) above my desk because it is not how we think. It is not how I have traditionally thought. Um, and, and I want people like, I want to do a good job, you know, and I, it's like we all do. And, and so I, I don't want, I don't know. It's funny how just those, that internal voice is like, but I'm not saying, you know, don't be excellent or don't carry your weight or don't be reliable or, um, but yeah, it, it, we don't think about rest or opting out or staying home as an act of contribution. We don't think about needing help as an act of contribution. As you say that, I think, damn it, you know, you also, you, me, all of us, you know, pointing my finger at you down the, down the line, but need to take responsibility for the vulnerability of being looked after because like that is also your burden to carry. And I think that's, that enables, it means that it's not all that poor, sick, disabled person. It's like, no, all of us have to carry the responsibility of being cared for. So how do we do that? Like, how do we just make care and caring and wellness and well-being something that is not a cringy topic or a women's only concern or a, like, how, how do we start to shift these cultures? Like, I think we're, we're talking about bits and pieces of the puzzle of just kind of you know, normalizing it in in small, invisible ways wherever we can, supporting our colleagues, supporting each other. But I, I don't know. I think we also have to change our mindset about what, um, like kind of what the role models look like that we aim for. You know, like I was listening to um, Glennon Doyle's podcast, and she was talking about she's good friends with the writer Elizabeth Gilbert, and how Elizabeth Gilbert are like, you know, the revolution to me are rested and relaxed women. <laughs> like women are always being told, be strong, be fierce, you know, go get him, slay, reach for the stars, you know, all these things. And it's like, what if the revolution looks like a bunch of really well-rested people who have demanded the conditions for that rest to be possible? I've read an article this morning by a woman called um, Kathleen Newman Bremang. We can put the link in the chat notes, but she was saying self-care equals rest and revolution. And you can't have one without the other. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. It's I think that's the rest is the individual part and the revolution is the structure to enable that and validate that. I'm not quite sure if that's exactly what she meant, but it, it's, yeah, it was a really, yeah, interesting way of thinking about it. And I, I think also, you know, you're saying how do we bring about this change? I mean, one is those small acts of courage, like put in your bio that you're a carer. It's a bit more fraught as a um, parental carer, I think, but, you know, but I also think about Cassandra Goldie, who's the CEO of, um, Australian Council of Social Service and her conversations about putting love, um, in, in the public arena. And she's talked about, um, how she spoke to a bunch of accountants and said, your work is an act of love. And they're all like, (laughs) (laughs) and she said, but you know, the calculating that you're doing, the careful management of finances is enabling our work, which is a work of love. And having people like her in public positions of power, you know, she's wheeling and dealing all the time with, you know, her advocacy work, but also speaking about love. Like I think I don't have the answer for that, but I, I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle and all of us being like, yeah, <laughs> rather than what's she talking about.
Hey everybody, just a quick interjection to say if you're enjoying this conversation and want more, head to australiaremade.org. You can check out some of our written content, you can subscribe for email updates, you can also follow us along on social media. The other thing I'll ask you to do is subscribe to follow the podcast and make sure that you don't miss a conversation. The second nicest thing that you can do for the podcast is spread the word. We are putting this out there through word of mouth rather than a big corporate advertising budget. So we are really relying on people to help get these conversations about solutions and remaking the world that we want into the ears of all of the amazing leaders and people out there just like you. Thanks so much. Back to the show. curious because what you're talking about with your community is I think something that many people would also envy, right? Like there's so much research that shows that in many um, kind of quote unquote developed Western countries, we are facing a loneliness epidemic, um, that people are really desperate to re-engage with a sense of community and connection. And Maybe when we think about those things at a headline level, we think about the good things, the cups of tea, the meeting on the sporting field, the kind of walk and talks and chats at the playground. And we don't necessarily think about pain in the ass neighbor knocking on our door (laughs) because they they actually need something or um, pausing something of our day and being inconvenienced to go help somebody mow their lawn because they're 90 years old. But you live in a community that is that does that, like your community, whenever you drop these little anecdotes into random conversation that just make me like my jaw drops. Yeah. What are some of the things your community does for each other and how have you created that culture? I mean, the first thing I'm I'm, I'm smiling as you're saying that about the annoying neighbors, I don't have annoying neighbors, just to be clear. Um, But you know, the record show. Yeah, that's right. But care is work. Community is work. Like that's why we have to, I think the very first step is like what I had to do, you know, I only work four paid days a week because I work at least another day on my community. And I, it's, it's not just quarantined into one day. It means I can adapt my days as I go. And I think part of that strength in kind of seeing that as visible comes from the fact that, um, so my mum was a stay at home mum. My dad went and worked as a teacher and throughout kind of growing up, I would always hear my mum very strongly say, I have a job, you know, it's not paid, but my dad had a job and my mum had a job and dad would go out to work. Mum would stay home to work. Dad would come home and then he would clock on to the other job, you know? And so I think that that making it visible, um, that's a bit of a sidebar, but you know, in our community, I was laughing about what you were saying, you know, what are some examples? You know, the day I'm sitting at my desk and I get a text from Julie up the road, uh, are you home? Are you allergic to bees? Can you come and help me move a swarm of bees off our neighbours? Like, okay. Um, you know, the, the new neighbours across the road or next to us um, are from Siberia and don't know very many people. And so we're going to, the community is going to do a food roster for them when their baby is born. And, you know, thinking, I've been thinking a lot recently about how we created this. And I think a couple of things, one is when I was doing my PhD, it was about this give and take. And so I would always talk about it. And then people would come to me and be like, oh, Millie, you'll be so proud. I turned up to dinner and I didn't take anything, you know, like (laughs) I asked for help. Um, But also, you know, we have street parties. So people see each other and know each other and, we make opportunities to informally connect, which builds that trust and that network. And I, I think it's, it's, it's an intentional practice. You know, we're sold this myth in these, you know, those estates out on the edge of town that say, you know, Happy Valleyville or, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> as if you can just waltz in and have the perfect life off the shelf. Like, no, community is messy and hard and boring and exhausting. And some days I want to put a note on my door that says, you know, are you on fire? No, great, go away. <laughs> Sounds like parenting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so true. We want to believe that we can buy it off the shelf. We want to believe that that if we just move to the right place where other people have kind of done the the work for us of kind of tilling that soil, that we'll just be able to slot right in. And 
I mean, one of the things that I love about my part of Sydney and one of the things that you will hear people say over and over and over again who live here is it has a really good sense of community. And I think when I had children, it helped me feel like I joined my community in a way that I never had before. Like prior to kids, um, even even the periods of time where I was briefly working from home and had a bit more autonomy and ability to kind of leave my house and walk around the streets and visit the coffee shops during the day, you know, it was kind of this like, wow, whole other world of people who don't just go off to offices. But when I had kids, that was the first time that I cared who my neighbors were. I know that sounds terrible, but where I really cared, who are my neighbors? What are their lives like? Are they nice people? Are, I, I was aware there's this line in the Robin Barker book, Baby Love, that says something about having a baby makes you feel like you finally joined the human race. And I really connected with that because it was like, yeah, you're vulnerable. You have, you need for the first time in my life, I've been very lucky to have been healthy and, you know, and so for the first time in my life, I needed my community in a way that I had never needed them before. I needed people who would smile at me and my baby and, um, you know, talk to us at the playground and it, and I was home a lot more and I was around, you know, and I could see this whole other side of life that wasn't just going into some other building, you know, doing eight hours of work. And then, you know, picking up some groceries and going home and, you know, your home was almost like this kind of bedroom community. And I think that's been one of the other really um, delightful benefits to come out of COVID. Um, and I, I mean, I don't want to make it sound all Pollyanna, but like the streets came alive again, you know, and we've seen so many, particularly I think for fathers, we've seen so many dads out and about all over the place. You know, not just where I live. When I talk to friends, they're like, I've never seen so many men out with their children, taking them to the park. Taking, like, I think fathers have gotten to know their, their children um, or been given the opportunity to get to know their children in the minutia of their lives on a whole new level. So it is a beautiful thing to make visible. And I think it's going to be interesting how we go from here. Yeah. And then thinking again about, you know, it's interesting that you, you're saying, you know, for the first time you needed community and I think you well a couple of things one it's really different because thinking about the elder elderly community who for COVID many of them have been kind of locked inside so they've had the opposite experience and that thing of we are all going to need community when we are older you know we are all on a on our way to some kind of uh disability is not quite the right word but less less abled physically and, and in different ways. And so I think that's, that's interesting. It would be interesting to see how different generations have experienced that in different life, life stages. And then you were also telling me, like, I, I don't know if you want to talk about the Amish example that you were mentioning uh, yeah. earlier, because I think that ties in really well with, yeah, how, how we do get served by our community and how we could also get served, you know, by the broader taxpaying community. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done really great work in your public good project that you're leading. And we'll, we'll link to something um, in the show notes so you can check this out. But Millie's written this beautiful piece about connecting community to democracy so that community isn't just something that stops at the white picket fence and, you know, we all feel great about but go home, but we actually connect community up to a, a sense of the greater good and the kind of universal things that we want for everyone. So I have a bit of a Vermont obsession. Um, anyone, if you happen to be listening from Vermont, you will know this. Please just, um, I mean, you will know why Vermont is amazing and God, please email me. I'd be so excited. Um, but my husband and I visited Vermont many years ago before we had children and we fell in love with it. I've just, it's been my kind of New England fantasy place uh, in my head ever since. And so I listened to um, a podcast out of there put together by um, Vermont Public Radio. And they had this show about how are the Amish doing in Vermont. Amish people have been migrating to Vermont. It's not where they traditionally had settled. And they were talking about um, and having actually a challenge of trying to tell this story about a people that they can't interview <laughs> on record because they don't want technology present. But they told this story of a little baby who was born with severe um, healthcare needs, like many, many surgeries required. And they were telling this beautiful kind of example of the community rallying around and having all of these dinners and fundraising events, trying to raise money to help this Amish family pay their medical bills. And, you know, they were 
promoting it as a positive story. And it was. It was a beautiful story. They were raising $10,000 at every gathering for a total of what is estimated to be a million dollars in medical bills. And when I heard that, my heart just, like, it just makes me want to cry because you think, but why, where is the challenge to the idea that a family should have to pay a million dollars worth of medical bills because they don't have the right insurance and their baby is born with serious conditions? And so, yeah, community is like, sorry, well-being is also about what we do at the ballot box. It is also about the policies that we demand. It is it is not just something that we can achieve privately or by living around nice neighbors like you, Millie. It is something that we have to think big for and we have to think about the we, not just the me. Yeah. And I think, the, you know, the flip side we have you know, Australia is not perfect in its medical system and, you know, there's many flaws. But the flip side to the story you just told is I was listening to someone tell a story two nights ago about um, their mother who'd been diagnosed with cancer um, only a month ago. And, in the, you know, in that over that month period, this woman managed to get the care she needed, the cancer was removed and she was cleared. I don't know what kind of cancer it was and I know most cancers aren't that simple. But the daughter telling the story said, you know, that's politics. My mum being able to access the care she needed in a timely manner, um, you know, in a hospital that had lights and electricians that had been trained to turn the lights on and the doctors and a medical system that we could access, that's politics, you know, that's that's care. And I thought, yeah, what what a wonderful link to tell that story between this is care is political, <laughs> you know, it's it's essential politics. Yeah. Yeah. It's the things that enable, there's a certain amount of suffering in life that cannot be avoided. You know, we, we are born, we will get sick. If we are lucky, we will grow old. And then one day we will die. This is to paraphrase David Ritter from the first time he was on the podcast. And there are these universal human experiences. There are moments of acute suffering. Some people seem to have to bear a disproportionate load of that for reasons that I cannot understand. But there is the gratuitous suffering. And I think every people, every place, every time we face these call to close that gap and of the, you know, what is the gratuitous suffering that can be eliminated and how do we eliminate it? Because the rest of the suffering is enough, you know, that is enough for any human life. And it's it's the gratuitous suffering that that is so unjust, you know, knowing that it is knowing that, um, when someone dies in a preventable death because of lack of money or lack of effective laws around gun control or et cetera, et cetera, that that didn't have to happen. That makes us so angry and upset. You can extend it out to care for the planet, you know, climate change again, what, what is, what is happening that we have no control over and what is happening because people are making terrible decisions, you know, um, how do we how do we extend out the idea of care from the human to the non-human to the planet to the community you know I, I think is really important yeah absolutely and again I think it's that simple notion of like are we actually doing the best we can are we giving everything we've got to this you know and I think it when when the horrible bushfire summer happened here a couple of summers ago I kept thinking to myself how different the psychology of the experience would have felt for me if I had known that we were doing everything that we could to to stop climate change. And what made it so hard was the feeling that we were just adding fuel to the fire or you know by the policies and the choices that were being made. But being told, you know, she'll be right love, you know, it's like Hitler's invading, but let's just go get a little bit of therapy on a couch and chat about it. We're not actually going to mount any kind of plan. Like it's, it's this crazy disconnect between, and you're right. Like we can't provide, if the healthy me is dependent on a healthy we or struggles to exist in the absence of a healthy we, that doesn't mean we're absolved of responsibility for ourselves and our lives. Like, but it does mean that um, we appreciate the wider context that we live in. And and that includes all the way up to, and I can tell you, even now thinking about where we might move, there are places that I'm like, but that's a real climate change risk, you know, and all the way, these big global things that bear down on the minutia of these small little insignificant decisions. 
All right. Well, this has been a very enlightening and helpful conversation. Thank you, Millie. I don't feel so sheepish. In fact, I feel sheepish about my prior sheepishness. So I will try to get over myself. Um, I thought we could end as we love to do with talking about something good that is bringing you joy or making life better right now. And if you like to, we could do kind of a good thing in the world and a good thing sort of for you personally. So do you want to kick us off with something making life better right now? Yeah, well, one of the things I've been excited about in the world right now, the way that different countries are experimenting with like the universal basic income or various forms of that, um, you know, there's opportunities to do that very badly, but there's also some exciting ones. So I think in Ireland, um, they're trialing a three-year universal basic income for something like 10,000 artists. And I just love the fact that money is being put towards not the actual art, but the caring for the artists to make art, to express, to allow us to connect with our emotions, to care, you know. I think that that'll be really exciting to follow because we've seen the arts take a really great hit in Australia um, during COVID financially. And yeah, I'm just excited about about that. That's so cool. Plus art has been something that people, it's been such a lifeline for us you know, it all, and it always is so important to the human experience and what a beautiful thing to actually invest in and to send that message to our young people. Like you're not crazy for wanting a career in this. There might be support for you. I wonder what that process was like to be in the lottery or how they did it. But yeah, I agree. That's super exciting. Um, my one is, and sorry to stay on a bit of a COVID theme here, people, but I am actually really excited that Australia is on track to be one of the most vaccinated populations in the world and especially because we've come from behind. So in my state of New South Wales, as I'm recording this, over 93% of adults have had at least one dose um, and 86% of people over 16 are fully vaccinated. In the nation's capital, nearly 90% are already double jabbed, um, which is a statistic that is almost unmatched anywhere else in the world. Millie, where you live in Tasmania, 73% of adults are double jabbed at the time of this recording. So those numbers will have only gone up. Um, and they're talking about hitting a vaccination ceiling now, which just seems like such a great problem to have. Like we have vaccinated absolutely everyone who wants to be who we can. And, um, and I just think that's, you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk about the way that, you know, this issue has, quote, divided people. And obviously, um, it it can be framed very much as like, you know, isn't it terrible that blah, blah, blah. And I think actually what these numbers show is that most people, um, whether they were ready to get the jab from the beginning and never thought twice about it, or whether it was something that they did have to wrestle with, but kind of decided to do, um, I think that it's something that we can be proud of as a community. And I think that by and large, we have kind of come together around this. And I know that there are exceptions and I don't mean to, um, you know, denigrate or attack anybody for different views or concerns, but it's just, to me, I think it makes me feel really safe about getting out of lockdown, being out and about and back in the world. Um, Yeah, that's really exciting. And what about one good thing in your personal life or in your world? Oh, one good thing. I made a pond in my garden and... You know, talk about community. The pond shell was a blue clam shell, you know, plastic blue clam that the neighbours over the road were throwing out. And I'm crap at growing plants. But <laughs> you just put these plants in the pond and they grow. And now there's all these bugs and life and, fuck, it's a miracle. You know, <laughs> where did they come from? How did they get in there? Like I'm, I'm just, yeah, astounded, hoping it doesn't attract the snakes to the backyard. But yeah, I'm a bit gobsmacked by watching my pond and I'm kind of laughing at myself because I didn't think I'd be the kind of person who would be gobsmacked about a pond, but there you go. There you go. That's fabulous. And I'm torn about whether to talk about yet another COVID thing, which I'm excited that um, home testing kits are coming to supermarkets because I just think it's going to make life real. It's just going to eliminate that bit of inconvenience and stress about going off and finding a place to get tested and know that if you just have any niggling doubt, you can you know, you can pick them up at Woolworths, you can pick them up at Kohl's. I think they're selling for like 10 or $15. And yeah, they might not be as accurate as the proper PCR test, but I just think that's going to give people an extra layer of kind of peace of mind and protection. But in general, uh, what is making life better for me right now is being out of lockdown, being able to see people again, being able to enjoy being in community again. And um, and thinking about I might actually be able to get on a plane one day and come to Tassie and see you again. <laughs> 
We can hope so. We can dream. All right. Well, thanks everyone. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Millie, for joining us again on The Remakers. We look forward to lots more of our chats. And if you have anything that you'd like to add, feel free to get in touch. We will talk to you all again soon. Thanks everyone for listening. If you want more inspiration about what the country of our dreams could look like, particularly in relation to this conversation, then I highly recommend you check out Pillar 6. There's a link there in your show notes. It talks about what it would feel like to wake up in the country and in the communities of our dreams. And really we were amazed at how talking to people from all different walks of life when we asked them this question, they all kind of said the same thing. And we talk about being compassionate and connected. We talk about our communities being places of fun and playfulness and kindness, having good infrastructure, whether that's public transport or public parks or good schools or hospitals, about families and neighbors who can look after each other and that that comes back to time. So wishing you all time to care and be cared for, to play, to be creative, to enjoy your families, one another, our beautiful earth, and time to rest. We will see you next time. been the remakers a podcast by australia remade we celebrate aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be australian that is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth i record this podcast from dara country which is just north of sydney i want to pay my deepest respects to elders past present and emerging on this land I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.